So let me read 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know who, sorry, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay, so I was reminded again this morning, there was an article I was pointed out to that uh, was just printed this morning, I believe, in the uh, New York Post, and uh, written by, and I wrote her name, Nadia Bokady, you'd have to say how to pronounce that name, and she, uh, for, it's my job to read these things, but for all of her, she is the, the sex columnist for the New York Post, and for all of her supposed worldly wisdom, she simply echoes everything that the world says about sex, and which is exactly why a sermon like this and more discussions like this are relevant and needed in the church. Um, and let me just say, make this thesis statement here. There's something broken about the way we understand sex in, our, in Canada. Okay? Now, let me try to sustain that for you with a, um, uh, uh, an example C.S. Lewis used. He said, imagine you were to show up in a town and you went to that town, and you realize there's this, you know, there's this uh, a shop or, or a club with neon all over it. And when you go in, you realize there's hundreds and hundreds of people gathered around tables and staring at a stage. And when you go to the, and you look at the stage, just before the lights go dim, sultry music begins. And as the sultry music begins, the curtain goes up, and the crowd wails and is cheering and going crazy. And all that's on the stage is a covered plate. And someone slowly, ever so slowly, lifts the covered plate, inch by inch. And the higher it gets, the more rowdy the crowd gets, the more impassioned they get. And then, eventually, he pulls off the, the lid, and what he reveals is a mutton chop full of bacon. Now, if you were to walk into that city and into that club, what would you think about the, the, the appetite for food that that people has? you would think something has gone clearly wrong with the way these people understand food. The appetite has gone beyond the need. It's no longer about just eating. It's about something grotesque made of eating. And so, he says, if that is the case, how much more do we need to look at the appetite of sex in humanity and in the world and say, what have we done? The appetite has gone far wrong. And this woman who wrote the New York Post today said, well, the reason we behave like that Mr. Lewis, she would say, is because we've been repressed for centuries and millennia. Because the Catholic Church and Christianity have put these, these, these constraints upon our, our freedoms. And as a result, we're repressed. So that's, what would, that's logically what happens. But let's go back to C.S. Lewis's example. If I saw that happen with a mutton chop on the stage, my first conclusion would be these people are starving. 
They must be hungry. So I would then go and investigate. And if I looked around the city and I realized, no, there's plenty of food. There's plenty of food. Then we'd have to find another answer for why they have made such an idol out of their appetite for food. And when I look at our world, Nadia, I don't see that we are sexually repressed. Quite the opposite. It has never been more accessible. Let me, in fact, use these numbers that just came out. I don't know, they came out recently. One pornographic website claims to have 120 million viewers a day. Okay? I don't know which one. It's on some uh, report. There are currently, they estimate, 45 million women and children, primarily, in this, uh, enslaved in sex, slave, uh, sex slavery around the world. And we here as a border town, unfortunately, know too much about that. By the time people in North America, our Canadian kids included, turn 20, almost 80% of them will have had sex by the time they're 20. The media has now become the primary sex educator in the culture, right? It's now television and media is where our kids are learning, and we are learning about what to think about sex. And as a result, is it any question, any, any surprise to us that something has gone wrong? But the question, I think, this passage, and what's so brilliant about the, the Bible in general, and Paul here in the Corinthians, is he addresses ancient problems, the underlying issues that led to the church in Corinth being beset with sexual problems, and they actually are exactly the same problems we're having today, which I don't know if that's awesome or terrifying. But there's, a slight, there's one newer thing that Paul didn't see, just because of the nature of history. We'll talk about that. So what we're going to do, we're going to try, through this passage, to look at what are the cultural assumptions of our world and the ancient world that underlie sex. Why? How did we get here? How did we get to be this sort of a people? Um, so the cultural assumptions. Second one would be, what's the biblical response then? How does Paul then say, here's how the Bible says we ought to be thinking about sex? And then lastly, what is the response of us, the church, Christians? How do we respond to this? First one, cultural assumptions. So one thing's beautiful about this passage. I don't think anyone, very few Christians uh, realize this. We put this next slide up, you're going to see there's certain parts of it that are in quotations. Have you noticed that? And we often think, that as we read this, that Paul is saying about himself, all things are lawful for me, but not, but not all things are helpful. Right? Not all things are lawful for me, Paul, but, not every, but uh, I won't let anything master me, dominate me. But the reason it's in quotations in your Bibles, unless you've got the NASB or the King James, because those take the Greek, and in Greek you have no punctuation, right? so you don't have quotes. But the reason they are quoted in other translations is because scholars, I haven't seen one who disagrees, unanimously believe Paul is quoting back the watchwords and slogans of the Corinthian culture back to them and then refuting them. You say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. And, he's, and if you, as an example today, these watchwords, these slogans floating around would have been, you have lots of them today. Um, my body, my choice. Black lives matter. Me too. These statements are loaded, right? They carry weight beyond just a few words. And so when Paul is addressing these, he is pointing out and saying, here are your slogans, and now let me show you, well, as he quotes them, what he's doing and how it helps us as, as Christians, as we again begin to see what were the Corinthians saying about sex. Why is it that a church planted by Paul somehow becomes a church that is beset with sexual 
uh, uh, dysfunction all through it. How does it get there? And part of the problem is that the church, much like us, are swimming in the cultural soup. I often hear people say, oh, I'm a Christian, we don't have the problems the world has. Yeah, you do. I've said it so many times, I love Starbucks, and when I come out of Starbucks, it doesn't matter how holy I've been, I smell like coffee. It doesn't matter if I'm praying with you and I'm reading, writing sermons. I'm going to smell like my culture a little bit, and you all do. And, and, and for the record, our young people do as well, and you're going to see that. So, what are the three underlying things that we see, the underlying assumptions of the culture? Before we talk about why they're wrong, which I think they're wrong, first let's see what those underlying assumptions are. That led to that article in the New York Post as well, and many like it. The first thing is when he quotes, all things are lawful for me. This is basically determinism. What they're saying is this. Hey, remember these are Christians too, right? Not just Corinthians, but Christian Corinthians. They're saying, there's nothing, I'm not beholden to anyone. I don't have any constraint upon me. I can do as I please. There's no, uh, there's no um, uh, moral law that I have to follow here. I'm a human being. I make my own choice. Stop, stop telling me that there's, uh, there's these unlawful things I shouldn't be doing with my body. It's my body. It's my choice. I can do what I want. It's determinism. And it's not just... See, so you can understand why the non-believers would think this, because that's what they heard. It's the loudest voice in the culture. But the reason Christians were falling for it, and still do, at that time especially, probably was Paul, no, it's not Paul's fault, but you can almost understand it, because Paul comes preaching grace, freedom from the law. You're no longer accountable for, uh, your, your righteousness is determined in Christ, not by your deeds. So it's not a hard thing to imagine that some people heard this and thought, okay, so I can do as I please now, right? So this, and, and listen, today, isn't it everywhere? The moment you tell somebody in the culture that they're doing something wrong with their sexual lives and their sexual practices, you hear immediately, how dare you? I'm not beholden to you. Don't you dare make me feel less than you because of some antiquated and and arbitrary set of criteria. How dare you? I have no fetters on me. I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. Right? So it's common. So... First thing, and this of course leads to, in the Corinthian church, Christians going around sleeping with prostitutes because they didn't have a hookup culture, they didn't have Tinder. So the only way to hook up with people without, say, without very real risk of losing face was to go to a prostitute, which was quite acceptable in the ancient world. And it seems Christians were doing as well in the church in Corinth. So that's the first underlying assumption is, I belong to no one, I can do as I please. First thing. The second one which we could call Platonism, that's the bigger for you philosophical nerds, um, comes in that second little part when he quotes it and he says, you know, you're saying the stomach is for food and the food is for stomach, right? What they're getting at is very simple. It's a food analogy, but he doesn't leave it at food. He knows it's being applied to sex. And what it means is this. Listen, we're just we're animals. The, you know, the ancient Greeks and the Platonists said, we have, we're, we're dualistic. We're all body and we're spirit. We're two. But those two aren't the same. The body is it's, it's base, it's material. It's got to eat, it's got to go to the washroom, it's got to drink, it has to have sex, it has to do these things. It's kind of debased. The spirit, that's noble. And as a result, those two don't touch, right? So what you do with the body can't affect your heart. It's just the body because you're an animal. And so the stomach has food. When you're hungry, you eat. And what they were saying is sex is just another animalistic appetite. That's all it is. When, I'm, when I have an itch, I scratch it. When I'm thirsty, I drink water. When I feel passionate, I have sex. That's it. It's all it is, Paul. 
It's nothing more. It doesn't affect my soul and my righteousness. It's just my body. Radically common in the ancient world and still exists today because this led to the assumption amongst many people in the ancient world to assume, including Plato and these guys to an extent, of saying sex is not good. It's actually bad because, you know, it's so, it's so base. It's not noble. So it's a, it's a necessary evil. You know, you got to do it for kids, but you should barely, you know, just do it for that reason, nothing else. Certainly don't enjoy it. And then what happens is it finds its way into the church. And I'm sorry, into the Catholic church. And then what you have is people telling other Christians that God says sex is bad, it's dirty, it's no good. And so sermons like this are taboo because people are like, oh, I can't hear this. I can't, I can't be talking about sex, it's bad. I should certainly never pretend like I enjoy my sex with my husband or my wife. Can't talk about that. Am I making you uncomfortable right now? This is why Tim Keller says that in order to preach these sorts of sermons, I have to be completely, um, uh, I have to debase myself. I have to not care about what you think of me because otherwise I'd run. I'd rather have other conversations. But it's true. And so this leads to this idea, even in the church, that this is something we can't talk about Let's, but you see what happens by with refusing to talk about it. We've surrendered ourselves and our kids to someone else's talk about what it is. And now we have the mess we have. So there's this first that we have no, we're not beholden anybody. Second one is that we are just, it's just an appetite. Sex is purely just an appetite, nothing else. It's like a car. You know, there's no morality. When your car needs gas, you put gas in it. When it needs its tires rotated, you do that. It's not a moral issue. It's not you're right or wrong, it's just it needs to be done. And there's a great segment in Corinth, and many of them still in the world, that say, Carl, you church people, stop it. Sex is just, it's just the bodies, man. It's just the bodies, it's not affecting my heart. It's just bodies. And that is an assumption underlying why they thought the way they did about sex and why we do still today. Now, the third thing is one that Paul didn't anticipate, but we see, and I have to address it, is when we see romanticism. Now, we talked about this in the first sermon on singleness, but the romantics, it's a big philosophical thing. Let's start here. We all know about what the Enlightenment was, is this movement that started to say there's nothing, in, so much, but let me make it simple. Um, material is all there is. There's, there's no other thing out there, just us. We are the standard. There is no other God. There's nothing of this. We determine everything. And then the Romantics come, and these, by this I mean the Romantic poets specifically, Coleridge, uh, Keats, Wood, um, Wordsworth, all and so on, and the writers that came in the influence of it, Jane Austen, Mary Shelley, uh, Lord Byron, all these guys. And they come and they start saying things like the Enlightenment, but they go a little farther. And what they say is this, humanity is good by nature, really good. And the problem with humanity isn't the ancients. See, the ancients said the problem with us is the, is the body. Material is bad, spirit is good. Romantics came and said, no, no, no. The body is good. Society sucks. Society's the problem. You and I are all brimming with goodness when we're born. All of our natural impulses as children are good. All of them. What, what, and if you have kids, you should laugh at that. Um, <laughs> But, so what has to happen, say the Romantics, is we have to rip from the culture the, and from people this inhibition that has been heaped on them by the church and by any other group that has said, you should stifle this. Because, and as we talk about sex specifically, your sexual appetite is good. Take it, be free, use it, do as you please with it. But of course, C.S. Lewis says, if that was the case, 
every young man would have peopled a small village. So this is the idea. But underlying it, what comes with the romantics is not just that. They say the only qualifier for two people engaging in sex is this, love. Do you like each other? Do you love each other? If so, that makes it okay. And don't laugh because in the church, how many young people and how many of your kids and how many of you maybe, certainly I've thought this when I was younger, say, I know we're not married, but I love him. I know, but we're engaged. Didn't work for Joseph or Mary, by the way. We're engaged. And then all of a sudden now, the criteria for what we do becomes this emotion, right? Love. And so we see these three things underlying the assumptions of people about how they viewed sex in the ancient world and today as well. I am not beholden to anyone. It's just an appetite. And they may have some of each of these. And then romanticism, meaning if I love them, I should be able to do stuff, whatever I want with them, regardless. This underlies it. Okay? Now, how does Paul respond? It's very simple, but it's kind of, it's Paulish. So he, he, he approaches it. Let me try to bring it and make it sound more coherent than maybe it sounds when you read it, even though I'm not saying I could do this better than Paul. So, three things he, said, he, he pushes back at these assumptions with. The first one, I guess I could call it participants. He first starts out in the very last, not starts out, at the very last line, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you uh, have from God? You are not your own. See what he's saying? You think you can do what you want with your body, but that's wrong. You can believe it all you want. You can live your life that way, but it actually isn't true. Your body is not your own. So if we take that car analogy again, that's to Christians, to the church, he's saying this. Your body is at best a, a, a co-owned car. Your body, once you become a Christian, is now co-owned. Christ comes, he now co-owns it with you. You share a body with Christ. And he is now in the car with you everywhere you go. So before you take that car and rob a bank with it, or go to a prostitute, or go to your lover's house, or even your fiancé's house, before you do that, you need to remember that when you do something, you are bringing Christ into that with you. And this is why you defile this relationship, because it's holy. You have this loyalty to Christ, and you're bringing somebody into the relationship that doesn't belong there, and I'll explain why in a moment. So that's a problem. You're a co-owned car if you're a Christian. Now, if you're a non-Christian, if you're a skeptic, you're what I think, and these, you have to remember, these illustrations can't be pushed too far. It's the best we can do. Then your car is not co-owned, it's a rental. Your body's a rental. You may do as you please with it. You're alone in the car at the moment. Like it or not, Christ, uh, contrary to the New Agers and Deepak Chopra and, and Oprah, um, Deepak, uh, these guys, uh, God is not inhabiting the hearts of the unbelieving world. You are in a rental car, however. You're still accountable for when you return it. You still have to account for, hey, I know this better than anybody. I've gotten, I've gotten speeding tickets in rental cars. And, and <laughs> don't laugh, Tim. And months later, months later, I get the email reminding me, oh, by the way, you've got this ticket. I am accountable for how I use it, says Paul. You're not your own. And so the world, first of all, has this assumption that they can do as they please because they have nobody to account for but themselves. It's a wrong assumption. We need to be able to tell people that in the world, to tell our children that, and to hold each other accountable to the fact that we share a car with Christ. Okay? So, he says this, but he, then he goes a bit further, doesn't he? He talks, um, he mentions the, this part at the end. Uh, they say, in the, in the quote, it says that you are, where is it here now, sorry, that the stomach is for food and so on, and they say, and God will destroy both of them. 
Now that assumption is the idea of saying, listen, the body's going to disappear. I'll fly away, oh glory, one day. So the body is going to fall away. So everything I've done with it is going to melt, but my spirit will survive. So the two don't touch. There's no consequence for what I do with my body on my spirit. Paul comes and says, don't you know you're going to be raised? Which means he is saying to them, don't you understand there is a consequence? What you do today with your body does have echoing and lingering implications into the future and into eternity even. And so he's reminding them of this, that they are not free agents. They are not their own. Their actions matter. So if, they, if that's the case, they better know what sex is and what it's for before they start using it. And we're going to get there as well. That's the first thing he does. Second thing he does is he talks about the place for sex. Not just the participants in it, meaning God is involved, but that there's a place. And that place is covenant relationship. And this is the part that sounds very old-fashioned, but let me try to explain this. First, even we in the human world here, even, not, uh, even the secular world understand that no meaningful relationships can be established on emotion. If I go into a home and I really like it, I can't buy it just because I like it. The, love, the government and the law will say, no, 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 you have to actually covenant with it. You have to go and say, I'm going to pay this much and I'm going to pay it back. I promise to love and cherish the home and care for it. And if it falls apart and something goes wrong, I am accountable. Because they real, even the world knows you don't base an important relationship on emotion. And God knows it as well, that you do not base your life on emotion. Romantics, it's not just I love them, so I should be doing this. That's not. What, what instead happens is look at the Genesis story. God realizes Adam is not good alone. He makes woman from Adam. He then presents the woman to Adam, says he brings her to Adam. Adam sings out, oh, you know, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and so on. Um, he then says, sorry, do you don't like the song? <laughs> I do that all the time. So then, after that happens, says, then the man will leave his family, remember, separating from one and creating this new family unit, and cleave to the woman, bind himself to her. So there's a commitment. And it's only after love, commitment, promises are made, then they become one flesh. And this is the moment where, says every scholar in the history of church uh, since its, its, its inception, this is where sex comes in. Sex only occurs within the context of total commitment, never without it. And this is why Paul makes it sound as though to, put, to, to sleep with a prostitute is, is so monstrous. The reason, and monstrous is the right word, because what he's saying is this. Sex is meant to be part of this human commitment. A man and a woman commit in every area. It's not just, I want your body for a night, let's hook up. It's, I'm going to commit to everything, to listen, to be with you, to support you, to love you, to never abandon you. I'm going to commit in every way. And in the context of a full commitment, then you give physical intimacy. But never outside of that. And why Paul says it's so monstrous is this. Imagine a full one-flesh couple is only whole and not, and, and not deformed when it is given in full intimacy of marriage. When you say, I'm, no, I'm going to sleep with them, but I'm, going to, I'm not going to be vulnerable with you, I'm not going to support you, I'm not going to stick around tomorrow, what you're doing is you're creating one flesh that is misshapen because it hasn't got the other parts. And so you've got this creature that exists that, like it or not, as C.S. Lewis says, that now, because of the sex act, somehow, and I don't understand it, but there's this mysterious bond that has been made. And that bond must be either eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. And for whatever reason, we do this. And so God says, sex is meant to have a purpose to bind the people together 
in intimacy. And when you try to do only one of it, listen, I'm a man. I was not a Christian until I was at university. I can assure you that this pastor can be a very smooth talker when he needs to be. And the way we could justify this to young women is incredible. You'll say anything. And what you're basically saying, when you refuse to commit in every area, but you want to commit in this one, you want physical intimacy, is you're basically saying, listen, all I want is one part. I want the benefits of full membership, but I want to pay for the full membership. And this is part of the reason God despises it outside of his covenant is it's being misused. And it's such a powerful thing. You're going to see how powerful sex can be in a covenant marriage. And because it's so powerful for good, it can be incredibly distorted and powerful as an idol when it drags people away. Now, I don't know where I am. We kept talking. Now, oh yes, let me say one thing here before I move on. I had somebody this week say this to me, so I, I want to cover it because it's important. They said, but Carl, doesn't the Bible only talk about not committing adultery? It doesn't say anywhere not to have premarital sex. Now, this person may have just been hoping that I say yes so that they could just live a life of doing as they please. As long as they don't get married, they, they're free agents. But it's actually not just not true, but it's so obviously not true that the Bible doesn't even need to address it directly because it does it so often implicitly. Back in when I read uh, 1 Corinthians 7 for our single, the, the, the sermon on singleness, um, here's, Paul's talking about sex and singleness. You know, you should be single because I am and so on. Here's what Paul says. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, listen, if you're single, but you're having difficulty keeping the temperature down, what you should do is go find your neighbor's wife, go get a one-night stand, go sleep around, just, just vent the animal passion. Just do it, because it's just an appetite. He doesn't say that. He says the options are celibacy, marriage. That's it. He doesn't, there's no middle. So when somebody says Paul is not talking about premarital sex, I understand what you're doing. You're trying to justify your sin. I do it all the time. We do it. But it's just not true. Sex is to be used within a covenant because that's the way God designed it to be used. And that's not just him, us being prudish. We find, and you're going to see in a minute, that it actually functions at its best when it's used in that context. So let me move to the next point. So it's in cup. participants, he defines, then he says where it's supposed to be, in covenant only. Then he gets into the purpose of it. So what's the point of it? Is it just for procreation? Well, it certainly is for procreation. We're mandated to fill the earth and so on. But there's two uses that I can get to here. Covenant renewal and self-giving. Tim Keller calls it self-donation. Good word, but I'll do self-giving. Self-donation seems weird. So covenant renewal is the first one. So in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of covenant renewal ceremonies, right? God covenants with Israel. But then he calls them regularly back and says, let's renew this. Come back. Let's consecrate the people, consecrate this land, the land. And in that ceremony, what you are to do is I'm going to remind you, Israel, of what you promised me, and you are going to be reminded of what I am promising to you. And you renew the covenant. It's our time to say, yes, amen, and I'm still part of this covenant. I want to benefit from it, but I also want to serve it. And in the New Testament, we see probably its most obvious expression in communion, Lord's Supper. Every week, every here, every month, it used to be every week my, at the last church I was at, we get together and what we're doing is we're renewing the covenant. And we say, once again, Lord, 
You alone are my God. I'm committed to you, and I trust you over all the other voices. And so, in this covenant of marriage, we are called to the covenant renewal ceremony of sex often. Now, in that light, sex is to be seen as an opportunity, a part, and there's other, this next part we'll talk about self-giving as well, is to be seen as us saying to our spouse, again, I'm reminding you that I'm never going to leave you. That this is exclusive, what we have here. No one else is welcome in this. This isn't a friendship. This is more. It's exclusive. And as a result, it becomes a foretaste and an expression, an experience of something of like the joy you have in Christ. Now, let me be clear. The Bible never says we have any erotic relationship with God. Even in Song of Songs, it doesn't say that. But it does say that you experience with God the deepest intimacy, the deepest vulnerability, the deepest love, the deepest joy and satisfaction with God. And sex in, this, in the covenant is meant for you to say to the other and vice versa, I'm committed, I'm committing again, and we can, this is a foretaste of what we're going to have. But because it's a foretaste, it means we also know it can never be what the world says it is. Sex can never be everything to you. You cannot be defined by your sex or your sexuality because it's a foretaste, it's a hint, it's a shadow. It points to the, the, the greater thing. So it should be an idol killer, really. And I'll talk more about idol killers in a second. So it's covenant renewal. And this is, okay, this is why using it outside of covenant is so bad. Because every time you have sex outside of marriage, what you're doing is saying, it's just transactional. It's just transactional. So then when you want to commit to somebody using it, you realize, how do I know this is real? How do I know, I mean, I'm just doing it with anybody. How do I know they aren't? I mean, I cheated on my spouse to be with them. How do I know they won't cheat on me? You see what happens? You're using this powerful tool outside of its design purpose, and every time you do it, it gets harder to use it the way it was intended. And the world is crying under the weight of these errors, constantly. So, now it's self-giving. The covenant we have with God is completely selfless on his part. It is completely unconditional. It's a one-way street. He gives, gives, gives. Even here, as we're worshiping, as we worship, it's amazing. Here we are worshiping, and he's supposed to be receiving our worship, which he does. But the whole time, we're not adding to his goodness. We can't. He's immutable. He can't be changing. We can't add to his glory and his fame. But what we can do is receive it. So as we worship him, it's interesting that he is constantly reminding you how you are loved. He's healing you and I as we worship him. And this selflessness is meant to be shown in the covenant renewal of sex between couples. So, and this is why hookup culture, and I have to say this, and this is the only part I think people will cringe at, but I have to say it. Masturbation are wrong. Nowhere in scripture does it say masturbation is wrong directly. It doesn't, okay? The only example of it is Onan, who spills his semen to the ground. How uncomfortable are you now? But when he does that, he is punished because he has failed to live up a different responsibility to his brother. It's not about masturbation. So people say, well, why is it wrong? And this is important if you're a single because this is a, a real struggle. This is, singles here have told me this. The reason it is we deem it to be wrong is this. If sex is meant to be giving of oneself constantly, not trying to take, but to give, then masturbation by its very definition is all about me. I am feeling. I am feeling. Of course, we have the images and the fantasies required to, to accomplish it, but still, it's this, self, this selfishness is the problem. And it's a sin in that regard, I think. Feel free. And this is the same thing with hookup culture. When two people who get together just to, just to have sex, sorry, 
I'm sorry. But when they get together, this isn't filmed, as it is filmed, oh boy. Okay. But when two people get together just for that purpose, do you know what's happening? It is two people getting together purely to satisfy themselves. It could be physically, it could be emotionally. I don't feel loved. I had daddy issues, so I'm going here, whatever it is. And as a result, that can never be God honoring because it's all about you. And it's outside of the covenant. It's just so many issues with hookup culture. It's basically mutual masturbation. Pardon my language. That's all it is. Two people trying to satisfy themselves alone, which is contrary to everything God says about sex. Now, this isn't, of course, to make people think that the Bible is anti-sex. I mean, it's, it's almost laughable to say it if it wasn't for the fact that we ruined it by our church history, by making people think. See, we didn't know how to deal with sex properly, so we just threatened people, as we do in our parenting. We don't know how to make our kids behave, so we just threaten them. We don't know how to make people not do something that feels really good, so we just tell them it's, God will kill them for it. And but the Bible itself, when you read it, is so pro-sex, it's actually, you think, this is bad. Let me read Song of Songs to you one day. I'll do that book with you, and if you, no one will be here. It'll just be me preaching myself. You'll all feel so uncomfortable. But there's one spot, Tremper Longman is a great, don't agree with, when I say a scholar is great, understand, I mean he's a really good scholar, or she. I may not agree with everything, but just for the record, I don't agree with anything other than the Bible entirely. But Longman very astutely says this, He's talking about one verse specifically in the Song of Songs. Most English translations hesitate in this verse. The Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators can't bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This, again, is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality, in marriage. The Bible is 100% affirming of sex. But because there is a boundary the world doesn't like, it gets labeled as something that is, oh, it's taboo. It's not taboo. But the way you're using it is wrong. And the joy and self-giving of sex between a married couple is meant to mimic the joy and self-giving of the Trinity. Again, I'm not talking, don't think I'm talking there's sexual acts happening in the Trinity. It's not it. But the mutual self-giving and joy and enjoyment and celebration of the Trinity is meant to be shadowed and hinted at in, this, this, in sex between the couple, so that it pushes us and points us to something greater. Sex is meant to be a safe place to give and make the other feel radiant. You notice I've said that almost every sermon? Have you noticed there's a theme that in human relationships, our cause, as Paul says in Ephesians, is to make the other radiant as Christ tries to make you. And in sex, it isn't, shouldn't be saying, let me take. It's always saying, how do I make you more aware of the fact that I'm never leaving you? the fact that I love you, the fact that you're the only one I ever show myself to entirely, and the fact that Christ himself is assuring that all of this will be in greater measure, what we're tasting, and it's C.S. Lewis again, what we enjoy the, the taste of at these streams, what will it be like when we taste at the fountainhead? The real intimacy, the real joy, the real celebration. And if both people are trying to outdo the other in self-giving, selfless giving, that is when you begin to see the power of sex in a, in a married couple. Now, now that you're all acclimatized to me, let's close with this final part. What's the response then of the church? The response of the church, uh, two things. First is, is couples. And I've said this earlier. Sex in anticipating the fullness to come means by its very nature that sex is not everything. 
the woman writing in the New York Post, the person who's concerned about gender dysphoria, thinking through sexuality, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, talk about identity, who thinks their sexuality is the way of, only way of self-expression. I can only be me if I express myself sexually. That's a romantic notion that needs to die. And sex, when done properly, affirms and kills this idea. In fact, far from becoming an idol, amongst Christians, sex should become an idol killer. And I'll explain. Sex, when it's done biblically, ought to put to death the lie that God will ever leave you and because the loyalty and the exclusivity in that marriage. It should put to death the lie that sex is about personal fulfillment. It's not. It's about self-giving. It should put to death the lie that sex is what my identity is built on. It's not. Your covenant with Christ is your identity, not your sex, not how good you are at it, how many notches there are, or anything like that. And it should put to death also the lie that great sex is rooted in feelings of passion. It's not true. Great sex is rooted in commitment to the other and full vulnerability to the other. If there is no commitment, how can you ever be vulnerable with somebody? How can I go to a stranger and tell them who I really am? and show them who I really am. I can't because they haven't promised. I have no assurance that they're not going to run and hide, laugh, mock me, or use it against me at some point. We'll talk about divorce and marriage next week. You know why divorce and marriage is so hard? Oftentimes, is because the couples get angry. And because they've shared some of this intimacy, they know exactly how to stick it to each other. And so they know exactly how to hurt the other person. And that's why divorces, on one of the many reasons, they stink. And they're hard. Because when you're fully vulnerable to somebody, but they can't be trusted with it, it's a problem. So we as couples, it's one thing we should know, okay? It anticipates the fullness that we have with Christ, and it is to be an idol killer. Now, community, how do we respond as a church? This is one of the missed parts of the letter of Corinthians, and a guy named Richard Hayes gets it perfectly. Richard Hayes is a theologian at Duke University. He was at Duke, last I heard. And he, has, he, he says, you know, the, the whole book in this passage about sex is actually not about just you and I individually. It's about the church. He's trying, Paul's trying to get the church to respond, not just individuals. Here's what he says. The concern of the passage as a whole is to call the Corinthians to act as a community and to assert the transformed identity of the baptized. The Corinthians are to stop seeing themselves as participants in the normal social and economic structures of their city and to imagine themselves instead as members of the eschatological people of God, acting corporately in a way that will prefigure and proclaim the kingdom of God. Paul is seeking to re-socialize them into a new way of doing business, a new community of consciousness. So a new community of consciousness. So here's how pastors have ruined this over the years. In the verses just before the ones I read uh, from Corinthians, Paul says, here's the people who won't be in the kingdom. Idolaters, you know, uh, thieves, homosexuals, this sort of thing. And pastors, sadly, for millennia, have taken this passage and said, Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to now highlight why all of these are bad and tell you don't do it. Don't be bad people. And it's a moralistic sermon. Whereas what Paul is saying is, don't you understand? You're to be a community that is an alternate community for the world. Everything I'm saying to you is common out there. We are called to be different. We are called to be a place where sex isn't an idol. Where singles aren't made to feel abnormal because they're not sexually active where our children can feel comfortable with, one, with us and with male or female leaders because sex has been ruined and has been ripped and, and, and scrubbed clean from all of its cultural problems here. We're meant to model what proper relationships are, the proper use of sex. That's what we're called to do. Redeemer is called to do this. And this is why Paul makes the point of saying, don't you know how you, you this, I mean, it's, 
You can do this in your discussion, your community groups this week. But when he says this sexual immorality is the only sin that sins against the body, you notice he says that? But what does he mean? Because suicide surely sins against the body, drunkenness, many others. I don't know exactly. <laughs> Nobody really knows, just for the record. But what it seems to be he is saying is, don't you understand that when any one of you is engaging in pornography, when any one of you is having an affair, whenever you're sleeping with a boyfriend or a girlfriend who's not your spouse, even if you're married, even if you're married and you're, and you're having relations, it could be not to God's will. Now, every time you do that, don't you know that you impact the community? All of it. And when people say, well, how? There's a lot of ways, but think logically. If my mind tells my hand to click on a pornographic site, my whole body is implicated in that act. All of it. If I eat, if I drink bleach, my whole body is implicated in it. And so, if we are a body, when one of us does something, it begins to erode the foundation of the church. We may not always see it. It may be slow. But in time, listen, how do you think churches down the street wake up being liberal? and having no problem with anything we've talked about as far as the cultural view of sex. It's not overnight. It's slow, bit by bit, by one person compromising and another, another, and then the leaders allowing it and going on. And so we're called to be a radical, there's a dead fly here, just won't leave me, sorry. A radical community, an alternate community, where sex is robbed of its power in the world sense and restored to its biblical power. So, really closing. Christians. If you're a married couple, enjoy your sex. Recommit to one another. Show and give the love you've received. Skeptics, listen, if you're not a Christian, or if you're a Christian who's believed the romantic idea that love is the prerequisite for sex, surely, let me just talk as a guy who was that skeptic. Surely you know that sex is all at once more important and less important than the world is telling you. It's more important because don't you feel, and in fact studies indicate that most people after a one-night stand, college students, feel regret afterwards. Don't you think it's actually more important than just an exchange of bodily fluids? At the same time, don't you also feel it's less than the world is saying? Because you also think, boy, a, a relationship can't be rooted just in that, can it? Must be more. Skeptics, you know it already. Repent and come to the one who knows how to use it, who created it for you, and find out how to use it properly. Lastly, for the church, we need to have these conversations. If I am not having these conversations with you, the odds of you having them with your children are slim. And I know because your kids are then coming to myself and Pastor Paul with confusion and thinking the world and TikTok have it right. We need to have these conversations. Tastefully, with Scripture, let that be your guide. But we have to have them because someone's out there happy to tell them. The New York Post, it's funny, you go to the New York Post, you have to pay to read anything, but not their talk about sex. That's a free article. I don't know why. Maybe I have an idea. So we need to have these conversations and help kids. We need to reveal the lies of the world and replace them with the truth of the gospel.